Good morning. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, at the end of the reading, I will end by saying this is the word of the Lord, and we invite you to respond together. Thanks be to God. The scripture reading today is from Mark 6, 45 through 52, and you can follow along with the reading and the response on the screens. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Grateful to be here with you. If you're in Kingdom Kids today, now is the time for you guys to go to your classes. We got preschool this way. We got K-1 and elementary this way. You'll meet your teachers out there. You'll get together. It's going to be a great time. Well, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, I apologize, and I'd love to remedy that. My name is Rob, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at the King's Church. Uh, so that's me. Uh, if that's news to you, if you don't recognize me, I'd love to meet you after the service. I'll be somewhere up here. Um, come and introduce yourself. I'd love to connect with you a little bit further. And while we're continuing these introductions, I want to let you know just a little bit more about me. One of the things that I like is reading. Uh, specifically, I like reading old dead people. Their works are great. It stood the test of time. And one of these old dead people I like to read is Clive Staples Lewis, more commonly known as C.S. Lewis. Um, if my name was Clive Staples, I'd probably go by my initials as well. But uh, that's neither here nor there. Um, but anyway, he may have an odd name, but he writes really good stuff. And one of the fantastic books that he has written that I thoroughly enjoy is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I've read this book a number of times. Matter of fact, I just got done reading it last year uh, with our oldest daughter as she was going through school. That was one of the assigned books that we had. And every time I read it, I just fall more and more in love with that story. Uh, if you haven't read it before, let me just give you a synopsis. We have the hero of the story. We have Aslan, and he's awesome. He's this ferocious lion. It's fantastic, the way that C.S. Lewis writes about him. And then you have this other character. His name is Edmund, and he's not awesome. Matter of fact, he's the worst, if you read the book. I'm sorry, I'm letting my cards out. Um, he just is. I'm sorry, he's the worst in the book. Read it, you'll understand with that, uh, that synopsis. Um, this is probably where I need to say this is a spoiler warning, but hey, the book's been out for like 70 years, so at this point, it's on you guys if you haven't read it. Um, you should still read it after this, and hey, let's meet together and talk after it. That would be fantastic as well. I'll buy you coffee. Anyway, Edmund, he gets into trouble. 
He opposes the white witch, the villain of the story, and the price for his sins and wrongdoing is death. But here comes our hero, Aslan, king of Narnia, who agrees to take the penalty for Edmund and to lay down his life to save him. While all hope seems lost at the death of the king, he rises from the dead and leads the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, along with the fellow Narnians, together to victory over the white witch and her army. Now, my hope that in retelling this story, you have made the connections very clear. You see, C.S. Lewis is telling a story within his story. He's actually borrowing from the greatest story ever told. All good stories have elements of this biblical story, this arc of redemption, this arc of a villain who is triumphing over these fo- uh, their prisoners, their captors. And the captors are crying out for deliverance, and we need a rescuer. And so C.S. Lewis writes about Aslan as that rescuer. He frees a host of captives after his resurrection and leads into salvation victory. Friends, this is clearly Jesus in this. And what's amazing is that the more you get to know this story and the story of the Bible, the more both stories together show themselves to be beautiful. Why am I talking about this today? Our text isn't the lion, witch, and the wardrobe. Our text is the scriptures that we just read. Because, friends, what we see today is that we have a story within a story that's also a preview of a future story in our text. Thank you. I will. Um, So let's stop. Let's pray. And let's ask the Lord to give us eyes to see. Heavenly Father, God, I am grateful that you are a storytelling God. I'm grateful that through story, you soften hearts. Through story, you show yourself beautiful. And through story, you equip other storytellers to borrow from your goodness and your kindness to tell us the good and beautiful things of this world. God, and how they find their fulfillment in you. So God, give us eyes to see now. Give us ears to hear and hearts to respond. And God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Oh God, my rock and my redeemer. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, normally, if you guys have been here a while, you know that we have our introduction, we give you our main point, and then we pray. I reverse this because you'll see. Here's my main idea. Jesus increases our faith by showing himself to be the greater Moses who leads his people into a greater exodus. I'll say it again. Jesus increases our faith by showing himself to be a greater Moses who leads his people into a greater exodus. And... If you're sitting here wondering if I prepped the right sermon, because Moses does not appear in our passage today, explicitly, you're asking the right question. You see, I hinted at it at the beginning, but this is a story within the story. And if you have been here for the past few weeks, Pastor Ian and Pastor Andrew have both referenced in this section in Mark specifically that there's some undertones that are going on. There's some references to the Old Testament that they, in their sermons, didn't have time to go into. But guess what, friends? We have time today. And so we're going to look at that specifically because that's where our text goes. This is the crescendo of this beautiful story that's laying underneath another story. And so we're going to be looking at our passage and its Old Testament backdrop um, with this. So We're going to get there, but we need to lay some groundwork here. 
So I think what's also helpful to note is that when we read the Gospels, we can almost read this as if it's like a daily diary account of what's going on. Like we assume that, um, most scholars assume that Peter is the source that Mark is using to retell this story. And so it's not like Mark's reading Peter's journal and he's like, dearest diary, what a week we've had. We just learned that John the Baptist's head was served on a platter after some teenage girl danced before this tetriarch and... Well, that was weird, but then Jesus decided to feed 5,000 people with some kid's lunch, and then he tells us to go into a boat, there's a massive storm, Jesus walks on some water, I don't even know how to make heads or tails of this because I haven't even processed the loaves that were just there. Until next time, XOXO Peter. But this isn't the way we should read the scriptures, this isn't the way we read the gospels. No, that's not how any of this works. In fact, the gospel account, this one, was written a couple decades after Jesus had already resurrected and ascended and went back to the Father. And why that is important is because we, the tag at the end, verse 52, it talked about how the disciples were astounded. They didn't understand what was even going on. They didn't understand the previous miracle of feeding the 5,000 about the loaves, and now they certainly don't understand what's going on here. But in this beautiful passage in Luke, which is another gospel, that's another viewpoint, vantage point, of telling this story, we read these words. This is Luke 24. Then he said to them, Jesus said, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Key verse here. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things, and behold, I am sending you the promise of my Father upon you. That's the Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then Jesus stays with his disciples for a number of days, and then he ascends to heaven, empowers them by the Holy Spirit, And then the book of Acts happens, the gospel going out. You see, Jesus had to give them eyes to see. He emboldens them with the power of the Holy Spirit and then sends them out to proclaim the gospel. And the scriptures that they used, that they had at that time, were the Old Testament scriptures. So when he opened their eyes to see, he opened the Old Testament to see. All of these things that you have observed for the past three years find their fulfillment in me. And the story that you have seen played out undertones and highlights in the story that has been from the very beginning. He's connecting the dots, which was known for the Jewish people, but not just for them, and then he tells it to the Gentiles, the unbelieving um, non-Jewish people who didn't have those scriptures. So he allows the apostles to make those connections so that the gospel spreads out, and the collection of work is our New Testament, bound together in this one Bible to tell this one story. And this is the, the way the church was built, upon the teachings of the apostles, the eyewitnesses' accounts, and the scriptures. So we have these accounts written down for us in the wisdom and inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that we too can see that from Genesis all the way to Revelation, this whole book tells one unified story, the gospel. Now we use that word a lot, gospel, but the gospel is good news. That good news is that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God has made us alive together in Christ through faith and repentance. And then he seals us with the promised Holy Spirit and he takes all these isolated individuals and he makes them a people called the church. And then he sends them out as laborers on that rescue mission 
to proclaim victory, to proclaim the king's victory over it. So that's our backdrop. That's our foundation. Now we're going to get into our text today. So I just have two points for you. It's the greater Moses and the greater Exodus. I'm not creative. That's all I got. So in our text, we're going to see, um, we're going to highlight some things specifically about Jesus, and then we're going to look at its Old Testament backdrop and start making some comparisons here. So if we look back, taking the last couple weeks into account with what's going on here, and then look a little bit forward to chapter 9, we're going to see some vast similarities here. So first off, Jesus miraculously feeds the people, 5,000 people, also known as dinner time with the Lurseys and the Andersons. If you've ever been with us, it's basically that. Um, I can tell you, it's a miracle. Um, so Jesus miraculously feeds the people. Jesus teaches authoritatively and does miraculous works. Jesus leaves the people to go meet with God on a mountain. And Jesus comes to the rescue of his followers Jesus meets with God and shines radiantly. That's our extending. We're going to get there in a little bit. Uh, in the coming weeks, that's the transfiguration. Um, and so in that encounter, we have Jesus meeting with the Father, Moses and Elijah showing up. It's going to be awesome when we get there. Just read it. It's great. Um, and he shines radiantly as a result. Okay? So that's Jesus. Here's Moses in the Old Testament. Moses miraculously feeds the people with manna from heaven. Moses teaches authoritatively and does miraculous works. It's pretty much the whole Pentateuch, but specifically you can look at the, uh, the Ten Commandments uh, and the deliverance there from Exodus. Moses leaves the people to go meet with God on a mountain. That was right before the law was given. Moses comes to the rescue of his followers while they were slaves. Moses meets with God and shines radiantly. Now, this is just not happenstance. This has to be intentional here. And what Mark is doing is he's drawing a connection between Moses and Jesus with these similarities. And that's great. We see that things are similar, but I have just made the point that I said that Jesus is the greater Moses. Well, how does he become the greater Moses? And for that, we need to look at our text. So if you look in Mark chapter 6, uh, verse 48, there's this odd phrase that comes there. It says, and about the fourth watch of the night, which is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus came to them walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them. Um, this phrase always stood out to me. I never really knew what to do with it. Um, it's probably terrible of me, but let me get you into my thought process here. Um, I had always kind of read this, like, Jesus sends them out, and he spends a little bit too much time praying on the mountain. He's like, yowzas, need to get back. But there's now this storm on the sea that he just sent his disciples into. And he's like, ah, eh, a lot of them are fishermen. This isn't their first rodeo with a storm. They can figure this out. I need to get back home because he doesn't have an umbrella. And the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. So he's just going to, you know, trot across the sea. And then he's like, you know, doing one of these, hoping not to be noticed. But then one of the disciples, probably Bartholomew, he doesn't get a lot of love. So I chose Bartholomew. That's who I think of. So Bart looks at him and he does one of these numbers like, You know, like, you're going to help, you're going to do something about this? And Jesus is like, oh, I meant to pass by you, but okay, I'll come in. And so he sea walks and over to them and helps them out. Now, I know there's a lot of mystery in Scripture, but I can say with confidence none of that actually happened, the way I described it. The motivating factors, Jesus wanting to just pass by as a car passes by another car. No, in fact, what was interesting 
is as I studied this, this phrase in the Greek, I don't know how to pronounce it, so it's the phrase in the Greek of pass by, is the same word used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures that speak about God who reveals himself as Yahweh and Moses. It's used four times in two specific chapters in Exodus. And so let's read those real quick. This is Exodus 33. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And God said, I will make my goodness pass before you. Same word, first time. And will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, second time, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by, third time. And then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. Fast forward over to Exodus 34. We read, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, Moses, there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord, Yahweh. When it's all capital like that, Lord, that's Yahweh. And the Lord passed before, our fourth time, him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for a thousand, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And then this is Moses' response. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. You see, for Yahweh, for God, to pass by Moses is an invitation for intimacy, for connection, for relationship. But you see, Moses could only see glimpses. Yahweh's glory, his goodness, was too much for Moses to take in. And I'm sure this troubled Moses. He longed to be with him. We read in Exodus 33, 11 that the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. But this is like a a relational block that's in the way. That God's glory was too much for him to take in, so there had to be a veil that separated them. So do you see, based on this, what's happened in our text today? Jesus is bridging that relational gap between God and man by being a greater Moses. God spoke to Moses, and Moses spoke the words of God to God's people. He was a deliverer. He was his mouthpiece. But he could only get thus far with God and go no further. But now God has become man to speak directly to his people, that what Moses longed for, for God to speak face-to-face with him, in Jesus, God speaks face-to-face with his creation. No covering needed. The veil is removed, and he intends to dwell with us. And he not only just intends to dwell with us, he enters into our suffering, our need, and he displays God's goodness and glory. If we back up to verse 45 in our text today, you see that there is a a circumstance that Jesus creates. It says that Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him on the sea. Jesus is creating a specific example, a circumstance in which these men would have to go through a storm. That these men would have to come to the ends of themselves to realize their skill 
was of no use to them. That they had to cry out for a deliverer. And that God was going to have to do that. Which takes us to the greater exodus. Quick recap of the exodus for those who are unfamiliar. Didn't come here today with your quiet time in exodus. Um, So we're on the same page. God's people are forced into slavery in Egypt, all because they were becoming too numerous, and a new pharaoh came about uh, in Egypt who didn't know Joseph, who God used to directly get his people in this specific place at this specific time. And out of fear that these 1.5 million people would side with an enemy and overthrow them, he enslaves them. So forced labor. Obviously, this isn't ideal. And so year after year, time after time, God's people are crying out for God to deliver. And God hears them. So he sends, he sends a deliverer. He sends Moses, his mouthpiece, his rescuer. And what's to deliver them? And what's not shown in movies like uh, The Prince of Egypt or The Ten Commandments is that they get the quote partially right. It says, Pharaoh, let my people go, and normally that ends there, but it's, let my people go that they may worship me. You see, our freedom from bondage is intentional. It's meant to produce something, and that something is worship. It's not just this freedom, and then you guys go figure it out, but no, it is an intentional freedom meant to provide relationship with the rescuer. So after some plagues come up, Pharaoh finally relents after hardening his heart, series there, and then he says, fine, go. And so Moses leads his people by God's glory going before them in a pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, and they come right up to a body of water, to a sea. And during this, Pharaoh's like, hey, that was dumb of me. I just let my whole workforce go, so I'm angry. I'm going to go capture them, kill them. So he rounds up his army. This is a massive army, and they're in pursuit. And so then God's people see, I can't go any further because there's a sea in front of me. Pharaoh's army, that which is coming to kill me, is behind me. And what does God do? He takes his goodness, his glory in the cloud, and stops them. Stops Pharaoh's army, halts them. You see, at this point, God's people are starting to question God's goodness. To accuse Moses, and by extension God, of malfeasance and Doubt sets in. But again, God has them exactly where he wants them. He led them specifically to this point. Got Pharaoh to this point in order to show his goodness. So God halts the attack by the army, hemming them in with a pillar of cloud and leading them here. And so Moses stretches out his hand and God sends a strong wind that divides the waters so that his people could cross on dry ground. They get to the other side. Pharaoh's army tries to follow On their own strength, they get stuck in there, and the wind ceases, and the waters flow over. And God's people are delivered safely to the other side. And then this is what we read about the response. This is Exodus 14. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so that the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. So are any of these elements starting to sound familiar now? Let's go back to Mark 6, 49 through 51. But when they saw him walking on the sea, 
they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. So they're, these disciples led to the waters. Wind, waves, terror setting in. And Yahweh shows up. Jesus shows up. This time, rather than a great wind dividing the waters, a great wind is stirring the waters and causing panic and turmoil. Jesus comes as the sea walker, unencumbered by the winds and waves. We don't read about his struggle, but the disciples' struggle. And the disciples freak out. In this very real fear upon fear, Jesus speaks peace to them. He says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Or to say it more literally, fear not, I am. The very name of God, who God reveals himself to Moses through the burning bush when he gets ready to send him to Pharaoh to free his people. And he says, who should I say is sending me? He says, I am that I am. The very name of God, Jesus reveals. He's saying, I am this deliverer. I am God who's come to deliver you through this. And that should instill peace. Now, this, lest we think that Jesus is just tapping into some supernatural power, like superheroes who just utter incantations and come like Shazam, this is more than that. No, friends, this is God himself, the very name of God, the I am. The I am that created the same winds. The I am who created the waters that he's walking upon. The same I am who created each of these disciples, the wood that made the boat and had them in this exact spot. That's who's coming to them to speak peace over this storm into their hearts. And when he does this, when he reveals who he is, creation is peaceful. He gets into the boat and the winds die down. I found this quote from Dane Ortland helpful when he speaks about this. He says, The first time Jesus calmed the sea in Mark in chapter 4, the account ends with the disciples asking, Who then is this? In Mark's second account of Jesus calming the sea, two chapters later, this question is answered. Who is this that even the winds and seas obey him? It's Yahweh. I am. And he's revealed through Jesus. Now you see, this greater exodus though, isn't this event here. No, for the God of the universe, this event is all but speaking his name, and that happens. Storms come. But you see, as this story looks back, it also hints at the future, which is the greater exodus, in that Jesus himself would lay down his life for his friends. This was the foretaste that he was giving them to let them trust him, as he previewed the coming attractions. This was the chips and salsas before the tacos. A few years after this took place, Jesus would go to another mountain to pray. But rather speaking to the storm, he would become silent and weather it. He, because of his sacrifice, delivered us from a greater slave master than Pharaoh, which is sin. He entered into the enemy's territory, death. He rose, loosening its hold upon us and freeing the captives. Friends, he sea-walked again, entered our boat, and comforted us as he proved to be, I am, Yahweh, the God who rescues, the God who fights for his people. This is the same imagery 
again, looking at the Exodus in chapter 14, where Moses says to the people, Fear not, stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you all, and you only have to be silent. Can it be that easy? The answer is a resounding yes. But you see, there's a problem. The problem is we are too much like the disciples. When we look at the end of our passage in Mark, it says they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They didn't understand this God who feeds his people, this God who provides, this God who rescues, because they lacked eyes to see. We can be in the boat with Jesus. We can walk with Jesus daily. We can read his word. We can know facts. We can have experiences. But unless the Lord gives us eyes to see, that's all it is. We need to believe it. And that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. So friends, here's our heart check time. Right now, whatever you came in today with, whatever baggage you have, whatever stresses, whatever situation, Jesus is in the boat with you. You've been confronted today with the fact that Jesus' power over sin and death has been flexed and those enemies are defeated. So friends, what are you thinking? What are you thinking about your situation? What are you thinking about Jesus? What are you feeling? What are you believing? So maybe you're here and this is the first time you've heard this story. This is the first time that you've realized that the need of a, of a greater exodus, of a deliverance from your sin, that you're familiar with God, you've heard of Jesus. I mean, you're in the building, right? You're halfway there. But you haven't entered into a relationship with him. Friends, the, the application today is to pray for the Holy Spirit to soften your heart, to cling to the one who calms the seas. Maybe you have already exercised saving faith in Christ, and you're here today with a lot of baggage. Hurricane Ian was just a foretaste of whatever's going on in your lives. School, marriage, friendships, family, all of these things are complicated. But my encouragement to you, where Jesus increases our faith, is that we can trust that he has brought us exactly where he wants us. You see, he brings us to the edges of those situations to show himself to be the one who can conquer. Not on our skill, not on a resume, a report card, a transcript, not in any of these things, but faith, being sure of the things that you hope for and having the conviction of things not yet seen. That's how Hebrews 11 defines faith. And the object of our faith is the second person of the Trinity, the very Son of God, who has become this greater Moses, who connects us to the Father, who leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Friends, Jesus today wants to pass by you. He wants to reveal his goodness and his glory exactly where you are. 
Jesus isn't afraid to meet us in our greatest storms to comfort us. So are you like the disciples in our passage, making headway painfully, struggling, struggling? Surrender to that. Surrender to his provision. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, it changes everything. It changes how we see our circumstances. It changes the relationships that we have with our parents, with our kids, with our spouses. All of this now, we are instruments of his to display his glory. Maybe to say it a different way, is that we exist to see a greater worship through declaring and displaying the gospel. That the hope that we have in the midst of our trials and suffering shows a greater Savior, someone who has a perfect track record, who reveals himself as the one who calms the storms. And friends, when you've tasted and seen the kindness of Christ, you can agree with our brother Charles Spurgeon, who is no stranger to suffering and affliction when he wrote these words. I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. That's our prayer. So let's pray now. Heavenly Father, God, I'm grateful that you're bigger than, bigger than our situation, bigger than um, the storms that we face, that you use people like me to display and to communicate the hope that we have. God, in the short time that I was up here, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit gives us softened hearts to see you, to believe you, to fear you, and to walk with you. God, I pray that you would pass by us now, that you would show your glory, and that we would trust you that we would learn to kiss the wave that throws us against the rock of ages. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.